Well, good morning. Happy Sunday to you. My name is James. We're so glad you're here at Cape Bible Chapel today. I hope you had the opportunity when you walked in to grab a mustard seed from the table there in the back. If you didn't get one, please get one as you go. I wish I could tell you the best way to hold that during the service. (laughs) Kind of the only thing I found was you can stick it under your fingernail and like stick your thumb over it and hold it there. That seems to work. I did notice yesterday as I was kind of up here practicing sermon last night, the longer I held it, the stickier it got, and then it just kind of stuck to me and I couldn't get rid of it. So you might try that approach as well. I want you to keep that during the sermon, and I want you to take it with you when you leave today. Please don't throw that on the ground, because then I'd probably get fired. And so it's nice to be with you here on what could possibly be my last Sunday at Cape Bible Chapel. (laughs) Take that with you when you go, if you don't mind. Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. I'm going to be in the Old Testament, all over 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 today. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture, and we're going to talk about decision-making and developing good habits, and we're going to talk about the outcome of good decisions, and we'll talk about what that little seed's all about. Now, if you were here last week, you caught the first part of this little two-part series that we're calling Great Decision-Making 101. It's like a class that we're all talking together, and I think we're all auditing the class. I think this is a pass-fail class. Because the idea is I want everybody to pass. I want us to be able to apply these things that we learn in our lives. Because we're really talking about being good stewards of the resources that God gives us. And how setting ourselves up to make good decisions, even little ones, even mustard seed-sized decisions, can result in these big differences for God's glory. And we'll finish this series up today. And then next week we're going to start this incredible journey together as a church through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to have our all-church lunch, our Luke party, to kick off that sermon series in our small group season. So please come back for that. But last week, we talked about a five-step process to help us make wise decisions. So let me do just a little review on that. We said first, we need to pray the Solomon prayer that we see in 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon has this opportunity to ask God for anything. And he very wisely chooses wisdom. Then the second step was we said we need to pray for God's peace as we make decisions. And then the third step was we have to have some big-picture vision about the long-term consequences of our decisions. And the fourth was we need to seek wise counsel and have people speak wisdom into our lives. And then the last step was we've got to trust God and choose. It's not very useful to work through a decision-making process and not, not decide in the end, right? In an event that was certainly a made-for-television moment, on July 8th of 2010, LeBron James, who is arguably the best basketball player in the NBA, he made a decision live on TV. I don't know if anybody saw that or not. LeBron had played his entire career up to that point in time for his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, for seven seasons. But he had this TV special, and he announced live that he'd made a decision. He was going to take his talents to South Beach. He joined the Miami Heat. Now, that worked out pretty well for LeBron. The Heat went to the NBA Finals four years in a row. They won twice. It's quite a ride for him. But now, he's decided he's going to return to the Cavaliers. Here's my point about the 75-minute television spectacle that 13.1 million viewers watched. He waited 28 minutes into the program before he announced his decision. Now, that's got to be a ratings thing, right? I mean, that, that's a TV thing. Is there anybody in the world who thinks LeBron didn't already have his mind made up when the show started? I mean, do you think he he went to that last commercial break and flipped a coin and went, oh, it's the heat, what do you know? 
He'd already decided. He'd made his decision before the decision aired. He didn't wait for the cameras to start rolling, right? He'd pre-decided. He'd already gone through whatever process he was going to use to make his choice. And I think that's really important for us. It's what we were talking about last week and what we'll discuss today. Because we said we're going to make decisions in our life, right? About 70 a day, about 25,550 a year. We need to make decisions. But if we want to make wise ones, we want to pass this class, then we need to be purposeful. And we won't book our own TV shows to announce them, but we need to be intentional. Because we're not just going to drift into making good decisions. One of the things as a parent that I enjoy just more than anything is embarrassing my kids. I think all parents really enjoy that, so it's not just me. But one of the things that's just so funny, my oldest boy, Gavin, is really ticklish. He's 15, and he's just super ticklish. And so sometimes if I'm driving and he's sitting in the passenger seat, I'll reach over to tickle him because I just love that because he'll, he'll reach over and grab my hand to try and get me to stop. And then I'll announce to whoever's in the car, oh, look, Gavin wants to hold my hand. <laughs> Isn't he so sweet? Take a picture of that and post it on Facebook. I, I just want to do that. I know that's kind of sad and kind of mean for me, but, but the reality is I love my family. I just love them. And so I tell them all the time, every one of them, multiple times a day I say out loud that I love them. You want to know why I do that? It's because I made a decision a long time ago, before I ever thought of having kids, that I was going to do that if God blessed me that way because my dad never said those words to me. I can count on this many fingers how many times my dad has ever said he loved me. I can count on this many fingers how many times he's ever written it down. The words just aren't in his vocabulary. Now, for full disclosure, I don't doubt that my dad loves me. He shows me in his actions. But because of his actions, it forced me to be intentional. I thought, man, if I ever have kids, I don't want to just drift into this. I I don't just want to take it by chance and think I'm going to tell them I love them. So I made that decision because I wanted to be purposeful. I didn't want it to be by chance. I wanted it to be wise. See, I don't think wisdom's role in our lives is supposed to be passive. I don't think wisdom wants to sit on the sidelines of our lives and never get into the game. Wisdom wants to be in on the decisions. In the Bible, in the Proverbs, we see that's the case. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 1 reads, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? See, wisdom's trying to get our attention. Wisdom's sitting over there going, Put me in, coach. I want to help make this decision. A couple verses later, In Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 11, Solomon shares that wisdom is trying to tell us, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Solomon is speaking for wisdom here. This is the guy who had the opportunity to ask for anything and everything, silver, gold, jewels, and instead he chose wisdom. We need to see that, and we need to grasp that with everything that we've got. If we're going to be wise decision makers, we have to be purposeful about seeking wisdom first. I said this last week, if we ever find the magic bottle and give it a rub and a big blue genie pops out, it seems like everybody's first deal is we want to ask for money. Wisdom's saying, no, don't choose the money. Don't choose anything over wisdom. Wisdom is the crown jewel. So even if it costs everything, 
we should seek and get wisdom. We want that to become a routine practice for us. We want it to become a habit. Because when it comes to decision-making, honestly, we don't want to wait for the moment of temptation. We don't want to wait for some crisis, some emergency to pop up and then be forced into making a decision. We need to be like LeBron James. We need to be like Solomon. We need to pre-decide to seek wisdom and make our decisions. Practically, as we go through our lives, I hope we're praying and thinking this way. I would caution you, young people, when it comes to setting boundaries, when it comes to issues of peer pressure, when it comes to relationships, especially physical relationships, please don't wait until a moment of intense temptation to make your decision. You might forget your five-step process and give in, make a bad choice. We'll have consequences that will last a long time. But if you purpose to seek wisdom right now, before you're forced to make a decision, if you purpose right now to say, I'm going to honor God with my body, I'm going to choose to not do things that are illegal, if you're intentional right now, you'll become more and more like Jesus in your decision-making. I think all of us can do this with our finances. I've heard people say this, and I'm sure they're well-meaning people. But I've heard people say, man, if I won the lottery, I would be so generous. I'd I'd give away this amount of money and I'd tithe and I'd bless this person and that person. And I don't want to sound like a downer here. But I'm going to say, unless you're in the habit of giving now, unless you're living generously now before you win the lottery, you're not going to do it when you win the lottery. You're not conditioned to do it. You've already pre-decided how you're going to handle money. You've kind of drifted into the spot where you say, well, I'm going to take care of my needs and my wants, but I can't really afford to be generous, give anything away. I had an amazing conversation with one of my college friends this week, and and I'm so blessed. This is what I get to do for a job. But she shared that she'd made a decision. She pre-decided something while she was working over the summer. She pre-decided to give away 10% of her income to the church she was going to up in St. Louis. She was purposeful about that. And the first paycheck came, and she looked at her financial situation, and her first thought was, nope, (laughs) can't do it. I can't afford to do it and still make ends meet. But she'd pre-decided. She was intentional. She wasn't drifting into this, and so she did it. She gave the 10%. And within the next two days, she got two little part-time job opportunities that would allow her the money to make it through the month. She didn't even take one of the jobs. But she was blown away by God's faithfulness and how he provides. See, we need to do that. We need to be intentional about making decisions, especially hard decisions. We need to commit this five-step process to memory, and we need to pre-decide. Because if we do that, we can become purposeful about being people of character and not just fall into whatever choice would come naturally to us. We need to seek wisdom. And this is so important to work through this process of knowing how to make wise decisions when these situations arise, when these situations come up. And then we won't struggle with the decision. We'll have already made up our mind about what to do. It could still be hard, but we can pre-decide. We said last week we probably make about 70 conscious decisions every day. You recognize what those are in your life. Hey, where am I going to have lunch? What am I going to eat? But we didn't talk at length 
about how we accomplish everything else that happens in our lives because all the other stuff comes through habit. I mean, we operate daily by habit, and it's okay. It's really an amazing part of how God has wired us. Habits are those regular patterns of thinking and feeling and speaking and acting that somehow get like embedded in our neurons. I'm working through this process right now again with my boy Gavin. He's learning how to drive, and he's a pretty good driver. But I've noticed when I'm with him, I say one sentence over and over and over again. Until two months ago, I'd never said this sentence in my life. It's not a sentence you say, but now I've said it like 500 times. Hey, Gavin, signal your intent to turn. Hey, Gavin, (laughs) signal your intent to turn. He's a pretty good driver, but he doesn't think about that. It's not embedded in his neurons yet, and that's a habit that can tick off a lot of other drivers. So I'm telling him every time, hey, Gavin, signal your intent to turn. So habits can be good things. They really can. But here's where habits can be bad. There are two big reasons. One is that sin gets into our habits. This is one of the enemy's great plans, that sin will become ingrained in our habits. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. You read that passage and he kind of carefully explains there's a war going on inside us between the indwelling Holy Spirit and our flesh. It's a battle to determine how we're going to make good decisions. And Paul says, I want to make good ones, but I end up making these bad ones. Why does he do that? Why do we do it? And I think there's a nod in that passage to this habit of sin in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Because Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He's saying, I know it would be best for me to listen to the Holy Spirit and make a wise decision. He says, But I see a different law in the members of my body. They're waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So it's a very bad thing that sin has snuck into our habits. It's in our members. Now, for Christ followers, we know. when We can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us make good decisions, but only if we choose wisely. Then we can defeat sin in our members, but we have to do that. We've got to choose wisely and be purposeful and go through this process Because the other really bad thing about habits is that we won't be able to override the power of habit, that power of sin in our members through willpower alone. It doesn't work. Willpower is ridiculously weak when it comes to overriding these habits of thinking and feeling and acting that are embedded in our neurons. I think we know this is true, right? This is why, honestly, it's so hard to diet. This is why it's so hard to resist pornography. Because willpower is not God's plan to fight that kind of stuff. I've done this in my life. Have you ever done this? If you struggle with your weight, I guarantee you have. You wake up and you say, I'm going to make a decision. Today, I'm not going to eat anything that's bad for me all day. I'm just not going to do it. And then you go to work, or you go to school, and somebody brought a box of donuts. Well, nobody's got a gun to your head. Nobody's forcing you to eat the donuts. But what happens? We oftentimes fail and not do what we said we were going to do? Sure, because willpower is not the weapon we should be bringing to that fight. You know anybody who's an alcoholic? If you know somebody like that, how helpful do you think it's going to be to go to that person and say, well, gosh, just by my own willpower, I'm not going to drink today? How's that going to work for him? I'm an alcoholic. 
by the grace of God, I haven't had a drink in 15 years. And God accomplished that in my life. He did it, but through my decision-making. I had decisions to make in choosing sobriety because I was unable to overcome that by the force of my own willpower. I need to go through the same process with donuts, and I haven't done that yet. But I need to. I really do. And I have the ability to do it because I've already made the wisest decision I could ever make. I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. We make that decision, and we will have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us. And then we can quit saying things like, well, I'm just going to try really hard to be good today. I'm going to rely on my willpower. I'm going to hope to be grateful today. I'm going to just really suck it up and try hard. No. God's given this ability to make decisions, to engage, to invest. We need to make decisions that will ingrain habits that lead us into becoming more like Jesus. If any of us sitting here today says, man, I think in six months I'd like to run a marathon, we're not going to do it by running home and laying on the couch and eating Cheetos. And six months later, we'll bound out the door and run 26 miles. It's just not going to happen like that. If we want to run a marathon, we've got to train. We have to discipline ourselves. The same thing is true for our spiritual marathon. We want to grow in our Christ-likeness. Listen, it won't come naturally. We won't just drift into it. Without purpose, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and be more godly. We have to make some decisions. We have to establish some good habits. Coming to church, coming to church to hear a sermon, that's fantastic. But why do you think we do the other stuff? Why do you think we offer small groups and Bible studies and discipleship opportunities and service opportunities? It's because engaging in those things are the discipline. Engaging in those things give us the ability and the opportunity to invest and make wise decisions and develop good habits Those are the things that will help us run this marathon called our lives. I truly believe engaging in things like small groups and the MAKE initiative, that will help us in this process. So please, take advantage of those things. You can pre-decide right now to do that. For the time we have left, I want to explain why you got that mustard seed when you walked into the worship center today. Because I'd love for that little mustard seed, i got mine right here, to be a reminder for us that little things, you can't even see it, (laughs) little things can become really, really big things. By being purposeful in small decisions, like investing in our local church, we can make a big difference in the long run. I think we know this. We see this teaching in the Bible. In Luke chapter 13, which we'll talk about next year sometimes, (laughs) Jesus gives a couple of illustrations about what the kingdom of God is like And one of them, he says, it's like yeast. How just a little pinch of leaven permeates a whole lot. I'm probably going to get fired over this mustard seed thing, so I wasn't going to have you hold yeast the entire time during the service. But he talks about the mustard seed, how small and insignificant it is. It's even smaller than other seeds. Yet when it grows, it doesn't just become a plant. It becomes a huge tree that birds can nest in. Little things become big things. Making decisions, developing habits starts the same way. You took a survey of my children, I guarantee you could do it right now and ask them what one verse I've quoted more than any other verse to them. They'd say it's Luke 16, verse 10. It's from the parable of the unjust steward where Jesus teaches, 
He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And we see that and we read that and we're sitting here in church and we nod and we go, yeah, yeah, that's right. But then sometimes we walk out of here and we totally forget that truth. That's why I want you to take the mustard seed with you today. Because we need to engage in little things like remembering that five-step process to make decisions. If we remember it, then it can grow to something bigger. We can utilize it and apply it in our lives. Little things like engaging in disciplines and the opportunities to grow instead of just thinking that's going to come laying on my couch. It's going to come naturally. We won't just drift towards making good habits. So roll that mustard seed around in your fingers and join me there in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And we're going to walk through this really incredible story. This is a true story. And this is not a story that gets like a lot of play in children's church. This is pretty much an adult story. Because there's some pretty serious stuff going on here. I've never seen this one on a flannel graph. There are three clear parts to this passage. Now the first part is that there's this great need. And specifically in context, it was a need for food. There were these bad guys from Aram, and they come and surround the entire city, and they cause a great famine by barricading the people in. And we're going to see some graphic detail about how bad the need is. Then the second part of the story is there's a king, and you would think the king would be the one who would be responsible for meeting this need, for trying to solve this problem, but he doesn't do it. And instead, we're introduced to some very unlikely people who make a decision. Maybe it doesn't even seem like a wise decision, but they make one. And then in the third part of the story, God takes these first two parts, the great need and the unlikely heroes, and God fulfills a prophecy that Elisha shares earlier in the account. God provides this ridiculous answer, and all the people in the city are saved by this small decision that the unlikely people act on. We read the story, and we get to see the impact of the situation. So hold on to your mustard seed and follow along, starting in 2 Kings chapter 6, and verses 24 to 25. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, he was the king of Aram, he gathered all his army and he went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. So earlier in chapter 6, Ben-Hadad had tried to defeat Israel with just a little band of marauders. Now he's getting serious. He mobilizes the whole army, and he makes it where no one can get in, and out of the, in or out of the city. And what results is this severe famine. And the famine is so terrible that a donkey's head, which would easily be like you know, the most repulsive and, and least nourishing part of the donkey, a donkey's head was selling for as much as you could have bought a small house for back then. If you had an old donkey's head laying around, you could get two pounds of silver for it. That's how valuable it was. And then it says bird poop. There's translations that call this field greens or seed pods, but the Hebrew there means bird poop. It says dove's dung, which would have been used to feed animals, which nobody would ever eat. It was being sold for two ounces of silver. And and just trying to paint the picture, this is a bad famine. Food that's so gross nobody would ever think of eating it was selling for the price of a house. Times are desperate. 
But then we see it gets worse. Look at verses 26 and 27. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, O Lord, my king. You're the one who's supposed to fix this problem. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor? Or from the wine press? So the king's name is Joram. And he's walking around the top of the city wall. And the king would do that for two reasons. And one was, it's supposed to be an encouragement. It's supposed to bolster the troops and the people to see the king up there. And the other then is for sure, he can see out over the city wall and see what the enemy is doing. So King Joram's up here taking a stroll and this lady cries out for help. And we're going to catch a lot of context from just that one verse from the king's answer. Because we're going to see Joram blames God for this predicament. He ends up blaming Elisha as well. Even though God had promised many times up to that point in time, hey, if you guys are disobedient, it's going to be bad. There's going to be trials for turning away from God. And here's where they end up. They're eating donkey's heads. So King Joram says, well, God isn't helping you. What do you want me to do? Go down to the threshing floor and and make bread from grain that doesn't exist? You You want me to go down to the wine press and find some grapes where there are none? So he's being sarcastic here. So the king blows off some steam, and then he asks this woman who's crying for help what he can do, and, and hold on to your hats, this gets really bad. Look at verses 28 to 31. king said to her, what's the matter with you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him, but she's hidden her son. Hmm. And the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And he's passing by on the wall, and, and the people are supposed to be able to see him. They looked up, behold, he has sackcloth beneath on his body. And then he said, may God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So I don't have to walk through this one, right? (laughs) This is so bad, the people have resorted to cannibalism. And the king hears about this, and he tears his clothes, which was the universal expression of just deep, deep sorrow. And we see he's wearing sackcloth, which is supposed to be the universal symbol of repentance and self-affliction. But it's all a show for the king. Because he blames God. And he blames Elisha. Now, Elisha is the one who is sent by God to warn God's people about this impending consequence for their disobedience. He's just trying to warn them, and Joram wants to behead him. King Joram wants to kill the messenger. So Elisha's sitting with the officials of the land, and they're probably talking about what should be done because of this famine. And God somehow warns Elisha that Joram wants to come in and cut his head off. So Elisha tells the elders of the city to bar the door. And that buys him a little time where Joram calms down. And he gets this opportunity to proclaim the message of God's deliverance. He tells what God is going to have happen. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 7. Elisha said, heads up, listen to the word of the Lord. Here it comes. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. 
you'd open the gates, that's where the trading would take place. So today, the need for food is so great that it costs as much as a house to buy a donkey's head, and people are eating their own children, but tomorrow, you'll be able to get seven quarts of flour for a shekel. Today, it's five shekels for bird poop. Tomorrow, you'll be able to get 14 quarts of barley, that's what they'd use to feed the cattle, for a shekel. Now, that would probably seem like crazy talk in the midst of this famine. As a matter of fact, it sounds so ludicrous. Here's the exchange that occurs between one of the king's men and Elisha in chapter 2, there, verse seven, or pardon me, verse 2 of chapter 7. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning, Joram had showed up by this time, answered the man of God, Elisha, and he said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, if he was looking down on us, could this thing be? And Elisha said, Behold, you'll not see it with your own eyes. Or pardon me, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you'll not eat of it. So there's another little prophecy there just for this one officer, and it's going to come true, and it won't be good for him. Now what's going to happen? Because this is a desperate situation, right? The famine is so horrible that people have resorted to cannibalism. Elisha's in danger of having his head cut off, and he says, hey, tomorrow it'll all be over. Well, what has to happen? Because King Joram seems unable to lead or find a solution. He just blames God. He blames Elisha. Well, here's where the mustard seed comes in. Here's where a small act from four very unlikely men end up making all the difference. These four guys end up saving everyone. And honestly, God ends up saving everyone. But he uses them. And so before I read this and give it away, I want us to think about how to apply this in our lives. Because we're going to come into situations like this. What if we're at our workplace and we enjoy our job, but there's no community? There's no fellowship whatsoever. What are we going to do? Are we going to wait until our boss notices and throws a mandatory block party? Or are we going to step in and create some community? I think we see this often in our lives. We want to lead our families well. We want our families to make good decisions, but we don't feel equipped to go and lead our family. So what can we do? Do we sit on the couch? Or do we invest in a discipling relationship where we can find somebody who's just one step ahead of us to pour into us and help us grow so that then we can go and equip and empower our family? Small decisions. We may be a small part of the puzzle, but with one decision like that, we can launch a movement. This is the most incredible part to me in this, sitting here in the church. If we're Christ followers, we can do that, and God will be with us. He'll get all the glory because he's the one who's worthy. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 here. We'll meet our decision makers and see what they do. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. They're having a conversation. They said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we'll enter the city, well, then the famine's in the city and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we die also. And so their circumstances cause them to make a decision, and they make a great one. They say, now therefore, come, let us go over to the camp of the Aramaeans. Does that sound like a great decision on the surface? The Aramaeans are the enemy. They're the ones who have surrounded the city. They say, let's go over there. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, we'll but die. We were going to die anyway. 
These four lepers make this decision. Have you ever felt like, man, there's no way I could make a decision that would, that would be valuable? I'm too young, or I'm too old, or I'm too shy, or I'm too poor, or I'm too leprous. I'm just a mustard seed. Here's four lepers with some pretty unusual motivation that make a decision. And they save this entire city when the king is unable. <laughs> king won't trust God for deliverance. These four guys count the cost. And they figure, hey, even if we go over to the enemy camp and they kill us quickly, that'll be better than dying of starvation. So let's see what God does here in verses 5 to 9. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians, to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight. And they left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was. And they fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they tippy-toed in and they entered one tent and they ate and they drank and they carried from their silver and gold and clothes and then they went and hid them. And they went back. <laughs> they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and they went and hid them. And then a light bulb came on. Then they realized, dude, we've won the lottery. And they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. If we win the lottery, would we give a bunch away? These guys at first were going to keep all this plunder to themselves. They make a wise decision. I say, man, this is more stuff than we'll ever need. Let's be generous. Let's save the city. And I'm sure they can't fully grasp what God has done here. I hope we pause and realize God does the delivering. God has provided. But they get some wisdom here, and they go back to the city gate to share this good news. Now, what do you think happens? It's in verses 10 to 15. And read that on your own this week. I'm just going to summarize for time. The lepers go back and tell the king and the people, and nobody believes them. And I get that. That would be ridiculous news. King Joram is just certain the Arameans have set a trap, but they end up sending like a few guys over as a search party to see if this preposterous story from the lepers is true. And what do you know? It is. These guys from the search party come back, and they announce they're saved. Now look at what happens. Anybody remember Elisha's prophecy from chapter 7, verse 1. Look at verse 16 of chapter 7. I love this. So the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then what happened? A measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Sound familiar? Now, yes, that's the exact fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. But on a grander scale, with a bigger impact, does that story sound familiar? Got someone with a great need who can't save themselves? 
receiving salvation from an unlikely source. Folks, this is the gospel message. God sees our great need. We're dying in sin. We're unable to help ourselves. We can't meet our own need through our own efforts. And God sends an unlikely person to bring about the opportunity for an incredible salvation. He sends His Son, Jesus Christ. I love this passage in 2 Kings. Okay, let's finish this true story out because you remember there was another little prophecy in there. Look at verse 17. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned, it's the guy who didn't trust God, to have charge of the gate. King Joram says, you go down there and open the gate. Now, this is the guy who thought there's no way God could make this happen. It says, but the people trampled on him at the gate and he died just as the man of God had said. The Bible's a funny read sometimes. This guy had basically ridiculed God. He'd certainly ridiculed God's ability to do what he says he's going to do. That's always a bad place for us to be in. And so the king sends him down to the city gate when it's supposed to be thrown open, and that's a bad place to be in, and he gets trampled to death. And so he doesn't get to see the fulfillment of this, the return of fair prices for the food. He doesn't get to eat of it. So let's close by, by talking about our application in a story like this. What does this story hold for us in regards to decision-making? What did those lepers do by taking action, by making a decision? They were used by God to save the city. There's a writer for a lot of TV shows. His name is Aaron Sorkin, and he wrote a show that I really like called The West Wing. I don't agree with the politics, but I love the, the writing of the show. The fictional president on the West Wing is a guy named Jed Bartlett. And he has a quote. He says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens can change the world. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens can change the world. And then he asked his staff, Do you know why? And the deputy communications director answers, Because it's the only thing that ever has. It's a secular quote. Put in as Christ followers, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And you start to see, you and I can make a difference. You and I can change the world. You and I can have an impact through godly decision-making. I'm going to include the decision to engage in activities and disciplines that will help us ingrain habits that are God-honoring. So we're going to leave today and we're going to take our mustard seed. And what's it going to mean in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, when we come back here to the chapel. If we're Christ followers, will we live our lives like we just won the lottery? Will we be generous? Will we partner with our church? Will we partner with organizations that God puts on our heart? Will we sign up for small groups, for Bible studies, for discipleship initiatives? Uh, maybe we think it won't matter. I mean, I'm just one person. I would strongly, strongly debate that point. Because what if it's God's desire to pour into you and you're going to go and make a decision that will impact the world for Him and it will probably start in your family. Go and become equipped and empowered by God to make a difference in your family. We can do this. I want to close with one example because I thought this was really neat. I talked about how good it is to come as a habit of coming to church. We do that for our own growth. I understand that. But we also do it, and I've heard many of you say, because we want to develop good
good habits in our children. Maybe you heard this story. This happened earlier this year. True story. Back in April, in Atlanta, a nine-year-old boy named Willie Myrick was kidnapped. He was taken right from the front of his home. And the kidnapper drove him around Atlanta for three hours. And then he kicked Willie out of the car. Told him not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, Willie didn't obey. He went and told folks. Do you know why the kidnapper kicked this nine-year-old boy out of the car? Because they drove around for three hours, and all Willie did was sing at the top of his lungs this praise song that he'd learned at church. It's called Every Praise is to Our God. I wish I could sing. It's a good song. It's written by a gospel songwriter named Hezekiah Walker. It's not an old song that he would have known forever. He learned it because he and his family go to Mount Carmel Baptist Church every week. Now, don't you just know that there's a family right there that is so grateful that they were intentional? They were purposeful about going to church. They didn't wake up and go, I don't know, you feel like going today? I don't know. They went every week, and Willie learned this song, and God used it to save him, literally, from a kidnapper. What decisions are we going to make today, this week, this month? Are we going to ask for wisdom? Are we going to pursue peace? Are we going to trust God even if the answer seems ridiculous, like four lepers saving a city, like a nine-year-old boy singing a song for three hours straight. Roll that mustard seed around a little bit more on your fingers and take that with you today. And remember, God can do huge things through one small decision. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for these couple weeks to talk about decision-making, talk about disciplines and investing and developing godly habits. Lord, we want to do this well for your glory. God, I pray for myself. Help me to lead my family. Help me lead my family well. It can't be enough to just tell them I love them. I've got to show them, and I want to call them to higher things. Lord, help me lead this church well. I pray for the elders and the staff here. God, I pray for each one of us as we have this opportunity to be used by you, we may certainly think we're a mustard seed. With humility, I think we need to be thinking of ourselves as mustard seeds. God, you can use us to make an impact for you. For your glory, for your kingdom, we could be used by you. God, help us to make these wise decisions. We love you. And we trust you, even when the answers seem ridiculous, like these four lepers saving the city. God, we give this day to you. Be with us in our decision-making process. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.